take a deep breath and remember there's a power breathing you. This is your space of sanity in an evolving world where we learn about spiritual law and how to apply it to our lives in a way that is practical and life-changing. This is where we remember truth to make the world a better place one person at a time. I'm Claire Lotier, inspirational speaker, teacher of the technology of transformation, and a certified life mastery consultant and spiritual coach. Welcome to the Grace Space. My heart is like a glorious grand piano, but the lid is locked and the key is lost. That's a quote from Anton Chekhov's play, The Three Sisters, one of my favorite plays ever. (laughs) And it perfectly describes the state of being I existed in for nearly 20 years of my life. In fact, it describes the state of many, many people who don't yet have access to the heart space. There are many ways to access this space of direct knowing, which transcends intellectual understanding. And doing so is vitally important to the individual and to the world. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. There's so much truth in that. One access door to the heart space is beauty, for example. You know how it is to see an amazing sunset or a glowing moon in the sky or some noble, graceful tree or a deer that's standing totally still? These are moments of spiritual beauty where you can sense the sacredness of creation. You don't think about them. You become them. Even for just a moment, the mind is silent. Then often it will jump in with comparison, analysis, or dip its oar in in some way, like wondering about the atmospheric conditions that must be creating the intensity of the color of the sunset, or calculating the moon phase and its position in the sky, or remembering the name of this kind of tree and something you think you know about it, or if the presence of a deer means that there must be ticks. <laughs> know what I mean? But until then, there's no thought, just a gasp and you become still and one with that beauty. And you know directly that beauty as you somehow. This is the heart space. It's where you know that you know. And you know that you are good and that everything is good. And there's no opposite to that good. It is a basic goodness and rightness that simply is. So there are different access doors to the heart space. And one of my access doors to the heart space has always been singing. When I sing, whether on my own or in harmony with others, I love to sing harmony, I get a big goofy smile on my face and my whole frequency changes. It just goes up and I'm totally elevated. My heart soars. In recent years, if I started my day with a singing lesson, my whole day was elevated. I would feel invincible, joyful, generous, and so fulfilled. 
At the ashram, when I sing, either on stage or with other teachers or during sadhana or sometimes solo on a special occasion when I've had occasion to share my voice there, I go right into the heart space and I feel the light flowing through me. But it was not always that way. I didn't sing for nearly 20 years of my life. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of how I lost my voice and the access to the heart space and how I found it again. I hope that it will inspire you to feel that breath of hope in your own heart space if you fear that you've lost something precious or that your piano lid is locked and you can't find the key and you're exiled from yourself. This story is about the return of our incorruptible innocence and joy I have always loved to sing, and I did musicals from a young age. Singing has always been a barometer of connectedness for me, and I often noticed that the quality of my voice and whether I was singing well or not, (laughs) well in quotes, was always more related to how I was feeling as a human being than how good my technique was. This always made me feel a little precarious about performing as a singer because inside I knew that if I was feeling unsure or insecure, it would affect my voice. But as a performer, I did a lot of musicals growing up and all the way through school. Halfway through my time at graduate school at the Juilliard Drama Division in New York, my wonderful, vibrant father, who had just turned 53, was killed in a bike accident while training for a triathlon. The shockwaves from this sudden tragedy rocked our whole family and my entire universe. A medical doctor and a psychiatrist, my dad was a beloved, respected, and trusted pillar of our community professionally and spiritually. At the time of his death, he was really blossoming spiritually. In fact, he was giving a series of lectures at our church about the relationship between psychiatry and religion, mental health and spiritual health. His series of lectures was enthusiastically received, and actually a book was published posthumously that brought all of those lectures together in one volume. My dad was a uniquely powerful, dynamic person with a keen insight into human nature and a childlike curiosity about the universe. He held a vitally important space for me when I was young. He held the energetic template for my future self, and he could see my potential and who I could become, even if I could not. Throughout my college career, he wrote me wonderful letters filled with wisdom and metaphor whose central messages were rooted in universal law. I'm going to read you a little excerpt from a letter he wrote to me back in March of 1990, when I was in my second year at Duke University, 33 years ago. Wow. As I was preparing this episode of the podcast, I went back and read the three letters I still have. I was amazed at how similar our styles are, first of all, and that he was referencing two of the primal laws in this particular letter, along with a bunch of other principles I now teach. Spooky. I don't know that it was conscious. I don't know that he had read anything about the hermetic principles or universal laws or anything like that, but they are baked into what he's sharing with me here. He's talking about the path through life and how that path 
and I quote, has its ups and downs, and one has to be careful to be lured neither by one nor the other. The best guard against such temptation is to make a special effort and look at things from a longitudinal rather than a transversal perspective, from a dynamic rather than a static point of view, from a movie picture rather than a still picture angle, from life rather than death. Your career choice, it was plain back then that I was going to be a professional performer, Your career choice will test this more often than any other would have and with a magnitude that none could match. Today's failure deserves the same reverence as tomorrow's success as brothers in arms in the struggle which is life. (laughs) I can't help but notice the perception of life as a struggle. Just a little sidebar. And he continues, Your choice of career is different in yet another way in that it dwells in creativity. It demands that you be creative, not only on stage in terms of understanding, perception, and expression, but off stage as well. And this can take one form only, the fullest expression of who you are. And this is no mean task. In addition to being a lifelong endeavor towards which one tends in an asymptotic fashion, ask Elizabeth, here he refers to my roommate who was a science major. In addition to being a lifelong endeavor towards which one tends in an asymptotic fashion, it is one which is most anxiety provoking because it calls for self-reliance, letting go of the familiar, confrontation of aloneness, and ultimately acceptance of non-being, as elaborated upon in a previous letter on anxiety. At the risk of being a bit concrete, an illustration of creativity, especially as it pertains to a woman, is in procreation itself. The child which emanates from her, the creative creating woman, is so specific to her that it cannot be duplicated by anyone else anywhere else. To be creative offstage, one must lead a life so specific to one as a baby would. Not duplicable by anyone else, not resembling any other baby, not adopted from anyone. Well, holy cow. I mean, (laughs) all kinds of foreshadowing. I had no idea what was coming down the pike when I was 19 years old. So he refers to the principles of polarity, the uh, principle of rhythm. He refers to non-attachment, the anchoring of the soul body, self-realization. It's unbelievable. I did not understand these letters in their depth when they were written, but I knew they were important and I saved them all. But several of them disappeared over the years. I have no idea where they went, uh, including the one he refers to on anxiety, which I would love to read now. And one of my favorites where he talked about the sculptor and the sculpture. I had suffered a disappointment, and he offered me the metaphor of the sculptor as the hand of the divine. Only divinity knows our true and highest potential. It sees the perfect, unique form inside the rough stone, and it hacks away at it, chipping off large chunks at first in a way that can seem brutal or cruel. But as the true form begins to emerge from within the marble, the blows become more delicate, refined, and subtle, 
until chipping away becomes sanding down, then buffing, then polishing. And I don't know whether he realized it or not, but this metaphor of the sculptor comes from Freemasonry, where we have the hammer, the chisel, and the stone. The hammer is the, the principle of, of the, the one, the number one, it's divine power. The chisel is the principle of uh, number two, uh, which is divine love. And the stone is uh, the principle of the number three manifestation pretty amazing. So this is how our spiritual path is. We don't understand why we receive the blows that we do, why things have to be chipped off of us, <laughs> right? This is, you know, wearing down the ego, chipping away at the ego, if you will. Sometimes life seems cruel and unforgiving, but when we understand the process of inner alchemy, we know that whatever is occurring is a consequence of the interaction of the infinite field and our own field, which is a one way of looking at karma. We take radical responsibility and totally accept the way life is showing up as the perfect consequence of the sum total of what we have become up until this moment. And we trust that everything is for our highest good even if it feels uncomfortable or looks like things are falling apart, the more we allow ourselves to let go of what is false in us, the more subtle and refined this sculpting process becomes. In a way, I guess my dad was my first spiritual teacher. <laughs> and the plane upon which we're most connected and compatible even now is the spiritual plane. We're a lot alike. And I have sometimes felt his spirit in me driving spiritual discovery. It's as if through me, his spirit has been able to access all kinds of expanded awareness and information that simply wasn't available to him in his physical life. And I've even felt guided by him at times toward an access door. For example, I feel that his spirit guided me to the work of the great sage, David Hawkins, whom I often reference in my own work because he's been such a major influence in my evolution. Dr. Hawkins was a psychiatrist, like my father, and at one point he had the largest psychiatric practice in the United States. This would have been when my father was practicing, and he might have been aware of him as a leading psychiatrist in the U.S. who was doing groundbreaking work. Back then, of course, no one was aware of Dr. Hawkins' state of enlightenment. He never talked about it. And it wasn't until years later, after my father's death, that he began openly lecturing on advanced spiritual states. I feel certain that my dad would have been powerfully affected by those teachings, and that in a way, his spirit has worked in me to acquire them. My father's sudden disappearance ripped a hole in my psyche the size of which I was unable to fully fathom at the time. It was as if I no longer had access to that energetic matrix of my own becoming. I was unmoored, lost, and unable to find center in me without the North Star of his magnetic presence. I soldiered on with the mask of confidence and competence. I was good at acting the part. But the barometer of my voice told the truth of what was actually going on in my heart. The blow of my father's death, that huge 
bit of marble that was chipped away from my life and the lives of everyone who knew and loved him. And my inability to process the shock and grief in its aftermath just hollowed me out to a husk. Some part of me died too. And the creative impulse of the soul, along with the courage to activate its unique creative expression, which he describes in that letter to me, was relegated to the underworld. Out of loyalty to him in some way, as my teacher later helped me to see, I allowed that energetic template of becoming, which he had held for me, to be buried with him. You understand, that was all unconscious. It wasn't a conscious choice. I had no idea what was going on in me. And no one else can hold the blueprint of your potential, the energetic template of your becoming. Only you hold that. It's in your DNA and other energy bodies. But another person can mirror it to you. And the mirror my father provided me was lost. And instead of understanding that it was only a mirror of what was within me, I lost my footing and fell into the void. Over the next few years, this manifested as an inability to sing in front of other people or at all. It was the loss of joy and the loss of connection with the soul. When I first left Juilliard two years after his death, I had signed with a top agent whose stellar reputation included great integrity. That reputation, plus his belief in me, opened every door. I was seen for big projects, including big Broadway musicals, but instead of excitement and gratitude for the opportunities that came my way, I felt only anxiety, dread, and crippling doubt. A kind of emptiness. Was I even real? Was I taking up space? It was like living at the bottom of a chasm and watching life happen up there from a place very far away in the shadows, the underworld, where I was small and weak. I couldn't even call for help. I couldn't even whimper. So I naturally couldn't sing. Walking into an audition for a Broadway musical felt like standing in front of a firing squad, and I suffered one humiliation after another in front of bewildered casting directors and creative teams who couldn't reconcile the neurotic mess in front of them with the talent they had heard about or seen in person in earlier years. I trembled, I saw spots, I felt faint, and I despised myself. As I let myself and others down time and time again, I was just unable to control my nerves before what felt like a yawning chasm of terror and dread every time I was faced with the opportunity of a singing audition. It's funny, when I think about it now, you know, the opportunity to be in a room with people and to sing feels like the ultimate joy and sharing and celebration. Uh, but that was really not how I experienced it at the time, not even close. It was the opposite. It was the dread. One kindly casting director called me over to the table one time and asked a few probing questions. He cared. He was trying to understand the problem. He encouraged me to take heart 
and trust myself. He said, Claire, what's going on with you? You got to get yourself together because we need you. I could hear his words from the bottom of my chasm, but I couldn't climb out. And I couldn't explain. (laughs) I had no answer to his question, what's going on with you? It was not something I could even articulate. And I was ashamed. My whole life as a performer, I had received nothing but admiration, encouragement, positive feedback. In the eyes of many, I was the picture of promise. I hated myself even more for being so weak, so undeserving, and I was completely unable to understand what was happening to me. This went on for several years. I tried to help myself with singing lessons, thinking it must be my voice, is something wrong with my technique. Uh, with body work, uh, obsessing about the issue, forgetting about the issue, even having a glass of wine once before an audition, hoping that it would help me relax. It did not. I was just paralyzed by doubt, frozen by fear, and I had a perpetual knot in the stomach and a strangled feeling around my heart. Meanwhile, I was going to therapy once a week, and I don't think I ever even addressed these issues. I tried to project the image of success instead. <laughs> I mean, I've mentioned this before, but I think I was just using, using therapy as a way to build and solidify the mask and make it more socially acceptable and more perfect. I think I was too afraid to even admit what was going on to myself. I blamed the business. I blamed the casting directors, the material, my voice, the lack of preparation time, the time of the audition, the cost of coaching for auditions. It's ridiculous. I can't afford coaching. <laughs> I mean, like anything but face this terrible doubt and emptiness. Eventually, I stopped accepting and, of course, receiving singing auditions, which shrank my possibilities as a performer. But my relief was almost greater than the pain I felt at playing small. I wouldn't have to feel that discomfort in auditions anymore, which was just a reflection the universe offered me. Instead, I put a sheet over that mirror. I'm not going to look at you anymore. I'm not, you're not there. <laughs> but you can't ever escape yourself. I wouldn't go see musicals. Because anytime I heard other people singing, I would feel a tidal wave of emotion I couldn't handle. In fact, I started putting down musical theater because I was jealous. It was too painful. They were free to sing, and I somehow wasn't. My brother studied opera. I couldn't make a peep. Not going to musicals became harder when I married a director of musical theater. (laughs) (laughs) You see, the mirror was everywhere. There's no escape. But avoiding my avoidance tied up a lot of energy, and I hid my self-hatred and unresolved grief with false confidence and arrogance. The truth was I felt like a failure. But the sense of having failed was deeper than missing the career I thought I should have had. That was hard enough. But it was a failure of courage, a failure to live 
fully, to express fully a betrayal of all the people who had believed in me and held a high vision for my life, a betrayal of my parents and their hopes for me. That's how it felt. But most of all, it was a betrayal of my own essence because I had failed to open my heart to myself and to life. Courage is an energy of the heart space. In fact, the origin of the word courage comes from the French word coeur, the heart. It was a failure of the heart, heart failure. It's no surprise then that my first marriage failed. You can't have a relationship as a hollowed out husk with a smiley face mask. There's no one in there, no one real. I withdrew, hid, deceived, and finally blew the whole thing up. Unconsciously, I guess I hoped that a major crisis would force me to draw upon my spiritual resources, and in one sense it did. The collapse of that relationship was the first time the fault lines in my psyche were publicly exposed, and there was some relief in not having to hold up the mask of being perfect anymore. But the ego merely shape-shifted identities. A divorce followed and eventually a remarriage, even a change of countries, but still I was riddled with fundamental doubt, with guilt, and I hadn't gotten much closer to healing the emotional problems that were now plaguing my life as an actor and also my life as a human being, naturally. And I was getting older. There was no outrunning the feeling of wasted potential. In 2012, as the energy tides turned fully into the age of Aquarius, I experienced that first wave of mass awakenings that went across the planet as an excruciating case of frozen shoulder that just came out of nowhere. Think back for yourself to 2012 and ask yourself what was going on for you that year and how you might have been experiencing an awakening of your own in some way. So for me, intuitively, I knew that I had to get right with myself, that something was wrong. And this was when I rediscovered and rededicated myself to Kundalini Yoga, and I began the teaching path. And I believe that it was this return to yoga that revived my long-dead singing voice. Why? Well, let's say it uh, in a non-linear way, <laughs> because it activated all the meridians and it brought life force energy back to the vital organs, including the heart. My heart started to open again. And after about 18 and a half years of exile from my voice, I felt a desire to sing like a tiny bird fluttering its wings inside my chest. Sometimes I would sit at the piano and tinkle the keys I used to also write music and try to make some sounds. One day, I spontaneously wrote a song to my father, and I include a link to a very rough version of that song in the show notes if you want to hear it. I really think you can hear the rawness and the tremulousness of the little bird in this recording. And then an angel appeared in the form of a local composer. And this marked a real turning point. He intuited the dormant singer in me and invited me to his house just to play and sing for fun. <laughs> he said, you should come over. 
you should come over. He actually told me that he specialized in reuniting people with their voices. Well, when I finally got up the courage to take him up on his generous offer a year after the original conversation, (laughs) I pinballed around his living room looking for something to hold on to to calm my nerves. But he horse whispered me to the piano and began to casually rifle through some sheet music. My heart was pounding. Let's see, let's see, he mused. And then he sat down and began to play some old tunes. Well, instantly, my love of music welled up. I sang a tremulous verse of Try to Remember. (laughs) I mean, the universe is nothing if not direct and humorous. And he paused. He looked up at me with great gentleness and said, You love to sing. You love to sing. I felt a rush of energy through my heart like a wind. And I remembered that that was true and had always been true. And I knew henceforth that I would never sing for any other reason than for love. Suddenly, I felt joy. As a young singer, I had rarely been happy with the sound of my voice. I was hypercritical and sensitive to any wobble or blip or quality of sound that wasn't good enough. I didn't know what self-love or self-compassion or self-forgiveness was. I had always looked outside for approval, for permission, for reassurance that I was special and therefore worthy of someone else's love. This is, you know, being caught in duality. And this precariousness was compounded by the death of my father, whose approval and permission and reassurance I wanted most. And I wasn't strong enough to withstand my own internal voice of judgment. Your voice is a vibration of your soul. The great master of the vena, which is an ancient instrument, Uh, This great master, Hazrat Inayat Khan, would often speak of the voice and he would say that the vibration of your voice has the power to heal you. His lectures are assembled in a wonderful book called The Mysticism of Sound and Music, and I highly recommend it. It's not about singing well or singing at all. It's the tone and vibration of your voice itself. That, that is a totally unique creative expression of your essence. It is your note in the symphony of the universe, universe, one song. And if you don't sing it, it is lost forever because it has never existed before you and it will never exist again after you. That note is your soul. The pain of exile from my voice, that vibration of the soul, taught me to sing for the right reason, because I'm alive. And that's enough to celebrate. I'm worthy of love because I'm breathing. I could see how my soul had authored the whole experience of loss to transform sadness and grief to joy in an instant. Sing from the heart became my mantra, and my reawakened joy was like a purifying fire that burned away all the old BS. 
I threw myself into singing, looking for every opportunity to put myself out there, not because I wanted to sing professionally, though I didn't exclude it, but because I wanted to celebrate and express joy and gratitude for finding my voice again after so many years. It wasn't just the voice, it was me. I auditioned, (laughs) triumphant at having fun, fun in the room, and full of delight for surprising people who didn't know I could sing. I became a soloist for concerts, large and small. I recorded a demo. I produced my own evening of song and celebration called the Metamorphosis Concert, joined by some of my favorite singers and friends. And I performed with a full orchestra for the first time. Eventually, I was cast in a wonderful new musical project where I created a lead role and had beautiful music written just for me. And this was all after I supposedly had left the business. These floodgates were opened as I allowed myself to feel the regret and remorse of exile from my soul, my voice. The inability to sing for those nearly 20 years was only a symptom of the loss of joy and the inability to anchor the energies of the soul. It was a symptom of the failure of courage. And yet that courage was paradoxically embedded vibrationally in my spiritual name as part of my spiritual destiny. It was part of that destiny to fail in courage so that I could find it again by learning to feel, to grieve, to let go of the mask, and eventually to reveal myself so that I could help others go through the experience. This is healing. A few years ago, when I was in France at the ashram working alongside my teacher, I was on stage every day with the microphone, translating, singing, participating in music seva. It was the first time I had had the responsibility of a big group of students to mentor as well. At the end of the training week, we often have some kind of presentation, a variety show, just where students have a chance to get their yayas out after a really intense week and share in a fun way what they learned or crystallized from the week. There are songs and skits and dances and so on. It's really fun. And on more than one occasion, I've emceed this little shindig as it's the kind of thing that comes naturally to me, I guess, and because everyone knows me since I'm usually on stage all week. On this one occasion, one of my fellow teachers suggested I sing a song to kick things off and celebrate the week. Though I initially hesitated, I allowed myself to be convinced and awaited inspiration for what to sing. Almost instantly, it came to me. The Sound of Music. I found a beautiful full orchestra symphonic karaoke version of this song. And as I practiced it for a couple hours before the celebration, I was struck by how meaningful the words were in the environment of the ashram, where I was surrounded literally by the Alps, like Julie Andrews, with the sound of church bells from the village next door and the mountain river we bathed in every morning, plus the little lake at the ashram. The words of the song seemed to describe exactly where we were, coming to the end of the experience of the week. And not only that, but the arc of my own personal journey with singing. Here are the words. The hills are alive with the sound of music, with songs they have sung for a thousand years. The hills fill my heart with the sound of music. My heart wants to sing every song it hears. My heart wants to beat like the wings of the birds that rise from the lake to the trees. My heart wants to sigh like a chime that flies from a church on a breeze to laugh like a brook when it trips and falls over stones on its way, 
to sing through the night like a lark who is learning to pray. I go to the hills when my heart is lonely. I know I will hear what I've heard before. My heart will be blessed with the sound of music. And I'll sing once more. To sing an old musical theater song from my tradition in front of a group of Europeans, to share from the place of an old wound that had felt so devastating, was vulnerable but also incredibly beautiful. I prefaced with one sentence about my former life as a performer, then sang my heart out, and my voice had never felt freer. When the song ended, the group of about a hundred or so people leapt to their feet with cheers and applause. I had the oddest feeling of having come full circle with this wisdom. I only sing for love now, and it's not about me. It's a gift, whatever form it takes, because I know that my voice is the expression of my soul's joy at being alive inside this chance, this opportunity to co-create with the infinite. I'm not even the one doing the singing. I'll see you next time. Meanwhile, walk in grace. Thank you for joining me in the grace space where you're always in the right place. If you love this podcast, I invite you to subscribe to it and submit a review if you feel called to do so. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter right here. I look forward to spending this time with you again next week. Meanwhile, I send you love and blessings. Bye for now.